if I could sum up my two decades of research um, and do a couple of questions, one of them is how do we get kids excited about learning? And the second one is how do we get them to believe in themselves? And when you begin to do those two things, you really do see a turnaround. Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our new podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Today, our guests are Pam Allen and Ernest Morell, two powerhouse literacy advocates and good friends of Scholastic. Pam is the Executive Director and Founder of LitWorld, a nonprofit literacy organization that empowers children on every continent. Ernest is the Macy Professor of English Education and the Director of the Institute for Urban and Minority Education at Columbia University's Teachers College. He is also a past president of the National Council of Teachers of English. Pam and Ernest are co-authors of a new book for teachers and parents, Every Child a Super Reader, which we're going to talk about today. Welcome. Thank you both for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us today. First, what are the seven strengths and why did you choose them? Well, thanks for asking. Um, we developed the seven strengths. Ernest and I um, are leaders in the organization Lit World, and we work all across the world and across the United States. And we've asked children what makes them feel strong and what their natural strengths are and what makes them feel the most powerful. And the seven strengths grew out of those conversations we had with children. And so the strengths are belonging, curiosity, confidence, courage, friendship, kindness, and hope. And we use the strengths when we're talking about children as readers because we really want them to see themselves as coming not from a deficit, but from an asset-based understanding of themselves, that readers belong to communities and readers are curious and readers develop confidence and courage through practice. You don't just, you know, you're, you're not just born with things, but you can practice things and grow things and nurture things. What do you think, Ernest? I mean, I agree. I think that the... Um if you look at the spectrum of them, starting with belonging, um, the strengths really come from a social-emotional learning framework. So before you can see yourself as courageous or before you can have confidence to really reach out into the world to help others, you have to feel like you matter, like you belong to a community. So that's normally the one that we start with, right? How am I, how do I see myself as a reader in a community of readers? And then how do we nurture each other um, through developing friendship? And how does that help us both to see each other's perspectives, but to see ourselves as belonging and connected to one another. Then you move out to kindness, right? We, we belong, we're friends with each other. How do we enact kindness on others? How do we become curious learners? How do we develop the confidence to really have the courage to express our ideas? And the last one that we talk about is hope. It's so important. You think about one of the key problems I think we have in American education is not that kids don't have ability, but they don't have hope in themselves. They don't love themselves as intellectuals and readers. Uh, they don't have that that confidence in themselves. So hope is so important for you to see yourself as a participant, not only in a community of readers, but in a global family where you're really going to make a difference in the world. And I think the seven strengths give a way for children to set goals that feel hopeful. I'm the kind of reader who 
makes a plan or who moves forward in the world in a certain way to say, um, I read this kind of thing and now I'm going to read that kind of thing and that I am the kind of reader who can read longer tomorrow and stronger tomorrow. I'm the kind of reader who can change the world because the things I read, the poem I read or the informational article I read or that novel I read is somehow changing me in some way. And so the strengths are really about saying, as what Ernest said, it's like creating the environments that adults can really foster environments of belonging um, for that young person so that the child in the environment can say, I am, I am somebody unlike anybody else. So my relationship with the text is actually unlike anybody else's too. And those strengths are designed to inspire conversations that teachers can have and parents can have and grandparents can have with their children that feel more open-ended. You know, how are you becoming confident? How are you creating reading friendships? How are you more curious in the world because you read something that really provoked your understandings? And how might, for example, having the strength of kindness make a child a better reader? I think the strengths do a couple of things to make a child a better reader. If you take one like kindness or maybe friendship or belonging, the first thing it does is um, it gives you a sense of worth and worthiness as a reader. And that's very important. Um, You're not going to be motivated to be involved in an activity where you feel you're going to fail. So if I feel like reading is how I express friendship with Pam and she's my classmate, or this is how we express kindness with one another, or what we do together as a community as a read, that's really important. If you think about um, like curiosity or courage, um, if I understand that reading is a way for me to learn more about the world, to feel more connected to the world, to feel like I can do something to make a difference, then it's not just the act of reading. It's actually the being a reader. I talk about the difference between the two. If you think about reading, it's just an act. But if you think about reader, it's an identity. Me being a reader means I connect with others and I, I learn about the whole world of ideas. But I also, if I see something that I don't like, if I see something that's unjust or unfair, I see myself as being able to do something about that. Mm. That's that's I I I could not say that better. And I think that the the idea of improvement in reading is that I I think over the last several years we've kind of missed this piece to Ernest's point about social emotional learning and the the importance of resilience building in children. We we've kind of been missing that. We keep saying, well, if we just teach those five more vocabulary words or that one more comprehension strategy, we will get this. And somehow that never seems to happen. And so we say, why has everything stayed so much the same? Why do we have so many kids in this country who are striving readers and not thriving readers? And what we're saying here is this was the missing piece. This piece, that honoring of the child's self, that honoring of the community that is the kind of community where I can count on Ernest. He is someone I can count on as an intellectual friend, as an emotional friend. He's not going to judge me or evaluate me in our in our intellectual or academic pursuit of understanding. And to Ernest's point about justice, I also think children are, they start being in the world in a very just way. And then there's no room for those conversations in the classroom. So they start to think that reading is really just about decoding. And it's really not. It's it's about everything about life. It's, it's a human right. And so the strengths in any case, I mean, in all cases, kindness being the example you were both talking about, but 
we underestimate the value of these social emotional strengths because we say that's soft when in fact that's the most robust i mean that's the way people who grow up to be very successful whether it's in business or education or politics or any kind of area of the workforce there's a way in which they're aware of themselves as community members and that's that's really powerful in reading too yeah, I think there's something really important that um, you brought up, Pam, and especially in the way the question's worded. So the title of the book is Every Child a Super Reader, and I think that's really important because we're not saying that this is for a certain group of kids, but but every child. And since we know that every child now does not see herself as a super reader, why is that? So some people would say it's because they lack the skills or they lack, so it's always about a deficit in the kid. The way this question's worded and the way we talk about the book is that if you do a few things that we um, we highlight, we can make every child a super reader. One of those is um, instilling a sense of confidence and a sense of connectedness to a reading community. If we begin to do that, more children will become super readers. But also, if reading is something that I'm doing that is helping me um, to solve problems that matter to me or helping me to um, learn about things that I'm curious about, that's going to get kids hooked. Right now, we know that kids who are struggling to read, um, mostly what they get is decoding. So reading to them is kind of like figuring out uh, a sentence that's totally abstracted from anything that matters. And it's the kids who are already labeled as great readers who get to read all the fun literature. And so um, it just reinforces for the great reader, um, this is why I love to do it. And for the reader who's striving, this is why I think it's boring or stupid or not related to me. Every child deserves that. They should have great literature that's connected to fun things to learn about and um, they should be involved with people around them and it should be exciting. And I think a word that um, Pam used Saturday at NCTE was joy, right? There should be joy involved. And if you, if you really cultivate that kind of community and it's bolstered by great literature, then we believe we've seen every child in an environment become a super reader. That idea, too, of the child who is striving, who feels like unsettled as a reader, that to Ernest's point about the, you know, the, then we become very preoccupied with the sentence level. And that sentence level is the, the reader who's already progressing gets a lot of open-ended inquiry-based questions. What are you wondering about when you read? What are you passionate about that you want to read more about? That's that curiosity strength. And the striving reader doesn't get that. The striving reader gets, you're struggling, so you'd better focus on that sentence level. So the striving reader doesn't get that curiosity, that strength at all. And so that becomes an inequity because that reader is so much driven to the sentence level and never driven to that big, expansive abundance that reading can give us. How does a teacher strive to have a classroom full of super readers when there is so much pressure on measuring? Hmm. Well, first of all, I mean, if you're doing these sorts of things in the community of developing super readers, um, you are going to have achievement, right? So it's not, I mean, this was Pam's point earlier about the social, emotional, or focusing on um, cultural aspects of students' backgrounds or, you know, um, community, that that's softer than working on comprehension or decoding, as which we normally think about reading. What, you, what I think you have to reframe the problem as is 
why aren't kids who have the talent and brilliance um, attracted to reading? Why are they not seeing themselves as readers? And then the kinds of things that you're doing um, are helping that kid to be a stronger reader, to be um, a more persistent reader, to be a more confident reader. All of those things are going to lead to achievement. Um, they're going to lead to measurable outcomes. We're not worried about that. It's not um, an either or, right? I mean, this is the pathway if you want to have kids who test well, if you want to have kids who are reading at great level, two things have to happen. Um, most readers who are striving readers are inexperienced readers. They're not reading enough, and it's because they don't enjoy it or they're not reading things that they're attracted to. The other is most readers who are striving readers have really low self-confidence, so when you come to a high-stakes assessment, what you're really measuring is that kid's confidence in himself or herself, not their ability. So once they begin to feel much better about themselves and once they become much more practiced at reading, uh, you're not going to have to worry about the measurement. Um, that's going to happen. Um, we we believe that firmly. I mean, there's a lot of research that supports that in our personal experiences with students over um, a few decades each. And I think I think you're right, and and that also this focus. I think what I'm excited about right now is there's a new renewed commitment and inspiration around this idea of putting giving kids access to the abundance of text. And that um, also has been missing. We've asked teachers to do a lot. We've put a lot of pressure on teachers, but we haven't matched resources to that pressure. So the issue is not really, what are we going to do with this data? Because the child, I have so many striving readers in my class. It's let's really put more commitment to what can we do for teachers and for students that's going to provide a more abundant community. when that community must have in it access to diverse text, access to the kinds of text children really want to read, that they can read voluminously and widely, and that we're going to see results. Yeah, I mean, there's two things that, if I could sum up my two decades of research um, into a couple of questions. One of them is, how do we get kids excited about learning? And the second one is, how do we get them to believe in themselves? And when you begin to do those two things, you really do see a turnaround. So part of it is um, an environmental or community aspect, as Pam was talking about. The other is resources, though. So if I think about that question, how do I get kids excited about learning through those two lenses? One, um, I get a kid excited about learning when she sees herself as being able to be a learner and successful at it. I also get her excited when I have resources that connect to her own experiences and resources that kind of bring the joy of reading out. I mean, the literature is so key. Uh, it's very hard to get a kid to be excited about reading boring literature, but there, as you know, it's scholastic. I mean, there's so many great books in the world. How could a kid be bored with reading, right? There's a book for everyone. And if we think of it that way, um, both in terms of giving teachers the resources to have robust libraries and also giving them the resources to be able to learn how to go find those books that connect to kids, you're going to see a change in achievement. And I'll just to add one last thing to that point is that we've been very preoccupied with as teachers with matching books to readers based on lexile levels, when what we're really talking about here is matching books to the reader who's living a life of reading, which means, I mean, we're all reading above, below, at level all the time. Be, you know, on the morning I need a poem, in the afternoon I might want to read what was the sports score, and in the evening I might want to just hunker down with my novel or my magazine or whatever I'm doing, that's a much more, we've become so narrow in how we 
quote, match kids to books and just matching them by a level that that's so unrealistic. And it, it's it, it's be prevented a lot of our striving readers from becoming successful. And it's also prevented a lot of our thriving readers from going beyond what we ever thought possible. And I think that there is definitely a benefit to lexile levels and to leveling on any, you know, in any way, shape or form. But what I say to teachers is that's level the text, not the reader. And that's two totally different things. Like it's good for you to know what the level of that text is, but it's much more important for Matt, for us to match text to the whole lived life of a reader and not just that one narrow number. What role does writing play in the cultivation of a super reader? I think it plays a, a few roles that are really important. One of the things we talk about, you know, in the literacy field is when people are writing, they know more about how they're learning and what they think. And so that's really important. If, uh, if you want to be a strong reader or even a super reader, it's really important for you to have a, a real relationship with the text. And one of the things that kids love to do when they hear other stories is tell their own stories, right? And so when you begin to write about it, you begin to think more deeply about that text. But it also, when Toni Morrison, you know, the famous Nobel laureate writer, talks about the power of reading as a writer. When you see yourself as reading a text to become a better creator of your own text, that's a powerful relationship. I argue that's the most powerful relationship because you're completely connected to the text. It's the same way a musician listens to music or a filmmaker watches a film. You're watching it because you want to do it yourself. Sometimes we separate reading from writing, and reading is to give answers. It's not to then join the conversation and tell your own story. But when you see yourself as a writer, you see yourself as a storyteller, you're engaging that text at a, at a much more intimate and powerful level. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, you know, I always say that reading is like breathing in and writing is like breathing out. And Ernest's point about you know, Toni Morrison saying this, or uh, someone asked Ernest Hemingway, what, how do you become a great writer? And he said, read Anna Karenina, read Anna Karenina, read Anna Karenina. And he said it three times because he meant reread Anna Karenina, not just once. And I think that's true when I'm going to write a speech, you know, I'll go back to my favorite writers and some of them are not speech writers. They're, they're you know, E.B. White is one of my favorites or I really love Zora Neale Hurston. Those are two of my most important writers. They have had a huge impact in my life and not just in the way I write, but also the way I speak and also a lot about my interpersonal relationships too. And I think that, um, that the child, you know, what Ernest said about that we've separated those two things, they actually go so much, they're so integrated. And so in terms of, a, on the more practical note, in terms of the classroom teacher, what I'll often say is there are several different types of writing about reading. And one is that kind of creative response, that hunger to make something because you just read something the way Ernest Hemingway was talking about or Toni Morrison. But then there's also the reflective stance, the right reader who says, I've just got to take a note or I've got to send a note to a friend. I was having lunch with a friend the other day and I asked him, have you ever, did you ever read East of Eden? We were talking about books that had an impact on us at some younger point in our lives. He said, you know, I missed it. So this morning I just sent the book to him and I can't wait to get his email back. I said to him, it's okay if you don't like it because I don't even know. I haven't read it myself in years. I don't know. But it's just that excitement about putting something into writing. I want to know what his email is going to say back to me. And even Ernest and I are doing a blog for Scholastic on our book. Even that is writing about reading. We're writing about our reading experience, our own 
life as readers and thinking about that. And then, so that's a reflective response. So there's a creative response, there's a reflective response. And then I think there's also in writing about reading an analytic response, which is the children in our classrooms are often asked to do so much of that in, in a way that becomes the only thing they do or the only way they're evaluated as readers. So it's like, I read that book, you know, Kwame Alexander's book, and now I've got to write an essay on it. In a way, you hear the groans around the room because the kids love that book, but do they actually want to write an essay on it? In some cases, I do think it's really important, and I, I think there's a way of constructing your own thinking that you're putting your thinking into play and you're saying, I have a point of view, I have an argument. Um, so I like that, but I think it's all in moderation. I think for teachers, if we can balance reflective, creative, and analytic writing in response to reading, then we're going to have a really robust um, approach. Great. Speaking of three times, you say, read aloud, read aloud, read aloud. Why is that so important for children? Well, I mean, it is to me, both in terms of my perspective and being in so many classrooms and also in the research that we see, the read aloud is absolutely crucial. It's marinating children in the sound of literary language in a way that can really raise the bar for them. So if I read a Walt Whitman poem to a class of fifth graders, I can't tell you that they're all reading at that level if we're going to look at the lexile again. But what I can tell you is they are perfectly able to absorb and receive that language from a mentor. And um, and so that one reason to read aloud is that marinating in literary structures or informational structures, steeping like a real nice long marination in that um, understanding of uh, vocabulary and grammatical structures. And there's some new research out from the University of California that shows that the best way to teach grammar is actually through the read aloud, which is amazing. And I completely love that study. Um, but the other part about the read aloud is it's not necessarily always text that's beyond kids' reading levels. It's really about how we're modeling critical thinking and talking and conversation off text. So children can see it's not something lonely, that, that reading is not always what happens alone, but it happens in community. Um, and so that idea that we're all going to be elevated to this conversation or whatever that text is, it might be, you know, it might be the Clifford books. You know, you, we could have deep, rich conversations. I was in a classroom reading aloud and to a first grade class of, uh, talking about Clifford. And one of the kids said to me, I feel like Clifford is all about being big and little and we're all about being big and little here you know and it's like that is so true that's a big idea about that book that maybe she had that idea by herself as a reader but now it's out in the community and it's like a metaphor you know it's a really big idea and this is why children love those books so much yeah i think that there's a a real consensus that reading aloud does a few things that are valuable one maybe that we underestimate is the teacher models the joy of reading and, and that is wonderful when you see teachers or parents or adults who are great at it and their animation and they're mimicking different voices for the narrator and different characters and the kids are laughing and they're seeing that reading is something that an adult that I admire and want to emulate is doing for joy. Uh, as Pam said, most kids are able to listen to and understand a story at a much higher level than they're able to read it themselves. And sometimes it's just a great story. And here you are like stumbling over each word and it just it's it's so much more fun to have someone read that fluently and and with a lot of energy and and a lot of passion uh, and and that is that is also important. You're understanding um the power of story. 
complicated stories, uh, stories that you can listen to and enjoy without having to do all the hard work immediately. I love that um, when teachers are also modeling um, comprehension strategies, right? So they'll read something and they'll say, what do you think is going to happen on the next page? Right. Or, uh, you know, you see the title. What do you think the story is going to be about? And, and so you're modeling this questioning, too. And that's important. You see a lot of times with read alouds, teachers that are really good at it, they'll they'll stop every now and then. Especially younger kids, they'll want to jump in and tell a little story and you kind of let them do that or they'll make predictions about what's going to happen. And so you also see, um, without calling it out explicitly, comprehension strategies happening at the same time. Um, I can't say enough about the importance of reading aloud. Even older kids, there's some, I don't know, legend out there that after a kid turns, I don't know, 10 years old, they don't want to be read out loud to. I read aloud to my college students, right? I read aloud to my 12th graders. So there's, um, we all like to be read aloud to. Absolutely. And, and and not only that, but it's it's good for us. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. So that high school student, mm-hmm. that college student, it's still really good for them. And uh, and it's, you know, I've, I've been really advocating, um, Ernest and I, you know, we at Lit World, we we founded World Read Aloud Day in 2008. Um, it happens on February 24th, 2016, this year, and um, around that time every year. And in collaboration with Scholastic, it's going to be huge this year. And I think it's it's just, it's both about the joy that we call serious joy and also advocacy that every child should have access to that experience. Mm-hmm. Great. And how might a teacher or a parent or a librarian form a reading community with the children in their midst? I think uh, sharing conversations around books, sharing books. Um, So one is that if you're all reading the same book, right, you're reading it in a community. And one of the things that I realized when um, I first started teaching, kids can understand books at at a much higher level when they're reading them in a community. Um, The community provides support, right? If you have a question or someone else and you can bounce it off, it provides accountability, uh, so you know that you have to, to 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 participate because it's not a community if you're sitting there and you're and you're not doing anything. It also provides serious joy. Uh, it's so much more fun, as you said. Now you're sharing this book East of Eden with your friend, and it's a little different experience than just reading it by yourself. And so the kids really want to do that. One of the things that teachers can do, or librarians or parents can do, is um, is is have that conversation around books. It's one thing to say, everyone read a book. So you and I and Pam are reading a book, but we don't ever have a conversation about it. We're reading the same text, but it's not a community. Right? If you have an activity, so tell me what your favorite scene is, right? or let's act out your favorite scene, or um, we're going to, different people are going to read it and, 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 and take turns or all sorts of things. So it's, it's not just having the book in common. It's the kinds of activities right? It, it's really cultivating that excitement, really cultivating that joy. And I think of community as, as being um, participants together. So one of the questions I would ask is, how is everyone participating, right? You could have 15 people in the class and a community of nine and six that are isolated. Everyone has to have a way in. And that, that's one of the things I'd really be thinking about. How do I get them all involved? How does everyone play a role? Right, even if I'm doing the reading aloud as a teacher, if I'm asking questions or allowing people to tell stories about what they think, or, so everyone has to play a role. Everyone has to be involved. Everyone has to share in that excitement. That's that's what makes communities happen. And I think that idea of the participatory community is really key. That the quieter voices. One of the great things I love about technology, and as it's paired with that reading experience, is that the quieter voices can come out through blogging and through also polling. There's some amazing new apps now where you can kind of get a read on the community's 
preferences or what did you think of that character? And the teacher can, you know, the, the kids have that on their iPads or their cell phones and they can share out into the, onto the back onto the smart board through their um, prefer- expressing preferences in different modalities, which I think is really exciting. Um, similarly, with there's a lot of great technologies out there now just that are fun for kids to do performance or to readers theater or to make videos and make YouTube videos and things like that that I also think create the participatory community around reading. So it's no longer the teacher has the answer and the student just has to figure out what that answer is. Because I think that's the best way to build a community is to say everyone participates and also everyone has value to that reading experience. Like the way I do want to know what my friend thinks of that book I gave him, not just because I want him to validate my feeling, but I also want to know what does he actually think. And then the other thing is, I'd say community is one. And then maybe another big C is choice. So that there is in the community, in that successful community, there's, uh, everybody has a sense of agency. So there's a time every day for independent reading where between 12 and 20 minutes a day, young people can make choices about the books they read. So if we're reading the whole class text, let's say, you know, it is, um, their eyes were watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. Everybody can have that conversation, but then we can go back and we know that we're going to get that 14 minutes that day to go back into our own independent reading lives to see how those connections to character and theme might stretch to what we're reading. So there's a community whole class text, and then there's the choice and agency. And I think the combination of those two things makes for a very successful environment. When I think of, um, you know, work with teachers, we, we start with three key questions. Um, and Pam, you dealt with all of them. One is, what do we read? And Really thinking deeply about how do we choose what is read is important to a community. Um, and the second is, how do you read? And that's everything from when do I read aloud and have students read themselves or you know, what kind of strategies? And the third is kind of what, what do we do while we read? What are the activities? And so this is something that maybe a formal classroom teacher might think about, but it's also something that mom or dad or an aunt or uncle or older brother could think about. Um, if I blow any of those, um, I might not have the kind of vibrant community. And sometimes we just will focus on one or two of those questions, right? So we'll really focus on our activities and reading strategies. But the only person who had input on what to read was the teacher. And people were like, all right, I'll do it because you're forcing me to. Or we'll have a great book and we'll destroy it by, like, you know, just having the kid answer like stupid questions, right? Or go write an essay on it. So you have to make sure that you're doing all of those things, right? As adults, when we choose communities, we have to, Home and school are not normally chosen communities. When we choose communities as adults, we walk away from the ones that aren't satisfying us. Kids don't get to walk away, but they walk away mentally and, and they, like their soul walks away. And you can see that um, whether you're on the couch with your son or daughter or you're in a classroom with 25 people. So we have to make it communities that even though the kids don't get to choose, they, they choose to bring them their whole selves to. That's so true. Scholastic did a study last year where the find one of the amazing findings was that something like, I don't remember, more than 90% of all kids, um, their favorite books are the ones they've chosen themselves. And that's, that is just that, that kid on the couch feeling like I have a place here. It's not this oppressive, only coming in one direction kind of community where, like you said, the homeschool communities are communities the child is you know, that's where they're assigned to be. 
But in the community itself, in the context of home and school, how can we provide that child with more agency and a more opportunity to say, would you like to read this or that? Uh, would you like to make a choice about the kind of book that you want to read today? And that, I think, has a big influence on the child's sense of identity and growing sense of self as a reader. So how might a parent create a home environment that nourishes this super reader? Well, the home environment and the school environment have more parallels than we might think. I think we think of the school as being more sterile than the home, and the home is this, you know, maybe has the potential to be more cozy and intimate. I think we have a lot to learn from each other. And I think that the we, in terms of home environments, um, parents will of, often say to me, I feel like I don't know as much as I should know about what I should be doing at home with my child as a reader. And they'll sort of admit that almost in confidence, you know, like, please tell me because I'm not sure I'm doing this right. Um, but some of the things that parents do very naturally are actually amazing and teachers, I want them to take from it too. And that is really that affirmational, I think you're amazing kind of environment, which I think kids don't really get nearly enough as readers. As soon as they get to the point where they're reading a little bit of a higher level, we move them to the higher level. And one thing I'll say to for the home environment is, Creating safe spaces at home means let your kids stay at the level they're at for a little while. So if they like a book like Mrs. Piggle Wiggle or the I Spy books or the Magic School Bus books, let them stay in those books for a while. Let them linger. Let them browse. Let them reread. And let the home feel like a place where... Yes, it feels nurturing when you give them a hot steaming bowl of soup, but it also can feel extremely nurturing to give them that repetitive experience with text. And that's the reason why children like to hear the same stories read aloud to them over and over again at home. They're doing what they feel most comfortable doing, and it's actually really good for them. You build stamina and fluency by rereading. And so what I say to parents is look for those small moments where it seems almost like your child's not doing anything all that new as a reader and compliment them and really affirm them and say, I love the way you went back to reread your favorite book. That's what great readers do. Um, and then the other thing is just to make sure the environment at home is, and this is something we can learn from the school environment, is is there a structure and ritual around reading? Because at home things are so busy and we're running to sports and music and we're rushing from work to cook dinner and everybody in the family is kind of hectic. We're on our phones texting the office for the next day. But to say, what can we do to create family reading environments and rituals, not just at bedtime, but even right before dinner, let's just take a break and just hunker down on the couch and pick up the comic books. Um, again, the, the text that we choose, much less important than the time we give it. The good thing about going after Pam is there's not normally much to say other than ditto. But, uh, you know, I have a, my youngest son is four. And, you know, if I scratch my ear and I look over at him, he's scratching his ear. It's kind of scary you know, how much they want to be us and they do the things that we do. Um, but that's how kids learn about the world, by emulating their parents. So I, I, the first answer to your question is, one of the ways you foster um, an environment for reading is to read, for them to see you reading, for them to see reading mattering to you, whether it's reading a recipe or it's reading the newspaper, right? Or it's, uh, you know, reading an email or a letter from grandma out loud, right? That, that we have to show that reading is important to us. And 
you know, my dad would always joke when I was a kid. He'd say, you know, do as I say, not as I do. He'd laugh because he knows that kids do what their parents do, right? So you could say, you go do your homework and you read, and then, you know, I'm, I'm going to go watch the football game, right? That's, yeah. that's, that's something to the kid, right? It's like reading is a chore and this is fun, right? So um, we, we have to make it fun by having it be fun for us too. Mm. Also, I think um, just the having books, having books around, you know, my, my wife takes my sons to the library. You know, she believes that we should, we should use that public resource, right? And, and, and as an elementary teacher, she would tell parents about how to go to the library and they come back with a stack of books, right? It doesn't cost you any money to do that. And so having them kind of spread around the house and she would do these family literacy nights. And so if you go into my youngest son's room and these books are displayed around, you know, like with his teddy bears and that's pretty cool. And he'll get to pick one and they'll read it, you know, or his brothers, or I will read it to him and he'll kind of memorize it. So it becomes something that we do together. Um, there are, there are texts to choose from. I think that with technology now and Kindle and Nook and those sorts of things and public libraries, um, school libraries, it's possible to have access to a lot of books around. Um, but I also think there's something that Pam said that's really important, that uh, it has got to be fun. And home is a place, I mean, school, it, it can be fun, but there are going to be some things that you're doing with kids that are striving that don't always feel fun. But it's not necessarily the case at home. I don't think you have to mimic school so much as you just have to have fun around the text. If you get like 100 pages in to a chapter book with your fifth or sixth grader and he says, this is boring, and you don't have to say, well, the next week we're going to read chapter seven through 10. You just toss the book and read something else. So fun, um, success, modeling, um, and, and having it be a we and not just a, a you are really important. And what if a child has dyslexia or a learning disability and reading is so painful, really, an agonizing chore? How do you help that child? I mean, I think a couple things about that. I think that idea of empathy from the adult to say, not pretend like it's not hard, but to say, I can feel that this feels hard and I want to do whatever we can to help make it feel better. And what enrolling the child in that conversation from the very young age to say, what would it take for you to feel more comfortable with this? And if the child is older and maybe 10 or 11 and says, well, I like it when you read to me, a lot of parents will say, but that's not going to help him learn to read. So we, I keep saying, I can't do that anymore. Let's not do that. And what I'll say is always to really be open to the child's perspective, if that's really helping them, they have such good judgment about themselves. They really do. And I think that um, to say, I hear you. And so let's make sure we make time for that every day. And then smaller increments of time, I'm going to help you to practice reading independently, but I'm going to sit right by your side and I'm going to accompany you in that. And then the other thing is to be as unjudgmental as possible around the choices that our children make. So if it's, I want to read more about Pokemon, or I want to um, read about that wrestler I love, or I want to, you know, I want to read the Archie comics. I think we, I want parents to feel like that really does matter. And the visuals do help. And also um, that the child is making decisions based on what feels more comfortable and that is going to help the child who has difficulty to get through those hard parts. And 
And, and again, back to that honesty piece, a lot of parents will tell me I'm afraid to admit to my kid that I'm not a very good reader. And that is something that I would like for parents and children to be more honest with each other about. Reading does feel hard. It feels even for someone like me who's always loved to read, there are moments in every day where I find reading hard. And that's a revelation to our children. Studies show that kids who read fiction develop a greater sense of empathy. Why is that? Again, I'm going to quote Toni Morrison. Um, I, I do. She's one of my favorite authors. But in her Nobel laureate speech, she says, national literatures reflect what's on the national mind. And there's, I think, no greater way to really help kids understand and connect to the human condition than to have them read great literature. So I would say it's it's empathizing fiction that creates empathy. There's a certain kind of fiction that might not do that. It's a choice of text, but it becomes a real way. I mean, one of the things that it's really powerful from social-emotional learning is this, this movement from um, kind of identity awareness, knowing who you are, to being able to take another's perspective. And perspective-taking is that link between identity awareness and kind of like social action. Um, it's, it's moving from myself to others. And I've seen teachers with literature um, help kids understand bullying, help kids understand what it might be like to move to a new neighborhood and not have any friends or be an immigrant from a foreign country and those sorts of things. And, um, you know, you it, rather than calling out someone in the class, be like, well, look at Cindy, right? Don't do that. But if, if there's something in a book, right, and, and kids begin to really empathize with the characters, um, that you, you kind of naturally take that person's perspective. And you say, how must it have felt to be Jimmy in your first day of school and no one would talk to you on the playground. And all of a sudden, it's okay to have a safe conversation. Like, well, Jimmy must be sad. Or, you know, why did Dan and Bob go play football and not invite him to go or something like that? Uh, so it's, it's allow, it allows you to have conversations. I think that there's so much great children's and young adult literature that really helps do that because you want to feel with a character. And um, it's a much more comfortable way to have really hard conversations about unfairness and injustice when you're talking about a book as opposed to talking about someone's real life. Uh, it's, I think, the best context, especially for young kids. And they really, they'll get to the end of the book and say, well, that's not fair, right? Like, well, why isn't it fair? And what you're realizing is um, it's it's just a natural leap into the book, into the lives of these people. I think that the reading is the best way to develop perspective taking, to be honest. Mm, I, I agree. And I think that you know, the the brilliant writers that we're so lucky to have access to, um, it in, especially in the United States where, like Ernest was describing about his wife taking the kids to the library, there is so much access that we can give our kids to these amazing writers who do put themselves inside the minds of, of people. And that is a way for all of us who are perhaps less brilliant to be able to say, okay, I, I can feel for that. I can feel for that experience, whether it's a, a little boy walking in the snow and feeling lonely, but also the magnificent world of, of the snowy day around him, or the big red dog lumbering around and trying to fit inside Emily Elizabeth's house, or the boy who comes to school for the first time in fifth grade with his facial disfigurement, like in Wonder by R.J. Palacio. Those books are all ways to, to help us come inside the lives of other people in a way that we couldn't do that on our own. It's a, it's a, it's a scaffolded, it's an experiential way, a social, emotionally resilience building way for us to be together 
and the human experience. And after 9-11, there was so much poetry and literature excerpts that went around the internet. It was like wildly people sharing and sharing. And somebody asked the poet, poet laureate at the time, Billy Collins, why is this happening? So much literature is going around like this. You know, why is this what people want? And he said, it's that we're telling the story and the history of the human heart. And that's really what it does to read for us. It helps us to be inside the human heart. And I think that that's why we can't take this lightly. We can't say children's literature is something fun you do on the side. It's something supplemental because it is not supplemental. It is essential. And it is a human right to have that experience with empathy. And I think that's also makes us, you know, we talk a lot about college and career readiness. And I know Ernest and I have sure talked a lot about that because we see that as an equity issue. But I would add to that civic readiness too, college, career, and civic readiness that what do we want to raise our children to be, you know, the kinds of people who can understand someone else's life and be inside that person's experience? Yes, because that's going to create better civil society for us to be able to do that. Yeah, I mean, there's something you said, Pam, that I think is really important. We try to touch upon it in the book. One of the things I think that um, you have to be aware of is there's a lot of literature out there. And while we have been talking about great literature under the assumption that folks are going to be choosing great literature, that I think is a, is a real question people have. How do I, as you know, a, a busy teacher, kind of find these texts, right, that would encourage empathy? Or how do I, as a parent, um, you know, we we try to include examples of books across the K spectrum and uh, every child a super reader. But that's the one thing that I would really encourage parents and teachers to do: to become avid readers, to um, join online communities of folks. Uh, there are there are many out there. Uh, try to find, um, you know great books for kids. Certainly choice is important. Kids are, are going to be choosers of text themselves, but that's not something that's done in isolation. I really think that the kinds of books that you are aware of, um, do I have books that reflect the American diversity um, in all sorts of ways and not just the diversity of my kids, right? That I want them to, you know, we're in Iowa. I want them to be reading about regional diversity. I want them to be reading about the past. I want them to be reading about other people and that sort of thing. So the, the empathy can happen. But the the world of literature is so wide and so broad. Um, you're going to want to be choosing texts, both that kids feel like they can be successful in, that are a little bit of a challenge for them. You're, you'll want to be careful about the ideas in texts that they don't seem offensive to the kids or um, that, that they have the kind of values around community. But that, again, that's a part of becoming a community of readers when we decide what are the texts that matter to us, what are the texts that we want to read. But in order to do that, the adults and kids' lives are also going to have to be avid readers of, of, of children's text. And, and I think that that's really important. It's not just reading the Wall Street Journal or reading the books I want to read. You become a voracious consumer. And they're great books. You know, they're, they're enjoyable for you to, as an adult to do that. But that's when you're going to get to all the things that Pam is talking about when we, are, when we, when we help kids choose the text that kind of make a difference for them. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And thank you for listening and sharing in our mission at Scholastic. We believe that the right book in a child's hands can open a world of possible. Special thanks to project manager Megan K. Safer, sound mixer and editor Daniel Jordan, music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl, and senior producer Chris Johnson. <laughs>